Chapter 13 of The Book of the Damned This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patrick McAfee The Book of the Damned by Charles Fort Chapter 13 One of the most extraordinary of phenomena, or alleged phenomena, of psychic research, or alleged research, if in quasi-existence there never has been real research, but only approximations to research that merge away, or that are continuous with, prejudice and convenience. Stone-throwing. It's attributed to poltergeists, their mischievous spirits. Poltergeists do not assimilate with our own present quasi-system, which is an attempt to correlate denied or disregarded data as phenomena of extratelluric forces expressed in physical terms. Therefore, I regard poltergeists as evil or false or discordant or absurd. Names that we give to various degrees or aspects of the unassimilable, or that which resists attempts to organize, harmonize, systematize, or in short, to positivize names that we give to our recognitions of the negative state. I don't care to deny poltergeists, because I suspect that later, when we're more enlightened, or when we widen the range of our credulities, or take on more of that increase of ignorance that is called knowledge, poltergeists may become assimilable. Then they'll be as reasonable as trees. By reasonableness, I mean that which assimilates with a dominant force or system or a major body of thought, which is itself, of course, hypnosis and delusion, developing, however, in our acceptance to higher and higher approximations to realness. The poltergeists are now evil or absurd to me, proportionately to their present unassimilableness, compounded, however, with the factor of their possible future assimilableness. We lug in the poltergeists because some of our own data or alleged data merge away indistinguishably with data or alleged data of them. Instances of stones that have been thrown or that have fallen upon a small area from an unseen and undetectable source. London Times, April 27, 1872 From four o'clock Thursday afternoon until half past eleven Thursday night, the houses 56 and 58 Reverdy Road, Bermondsey, were assailed with stones and other missiles coming from an unseen quarter. Two children were injured, every window broken, and several articles of furniture were destroyed. Although there was a strong body of policemen scattered in the neighborhood, they could not trace the direction whence the stones were thrown. No. Other missiles makes a complication here, 
But if the expression means tin cans and old shoes, and if we accept that the direction could not be traced because it never occurred to anyone to look upward, why, we've lost a good deal of our provincialism by this time. London Times, September 16, 1841. That, in the home of Mrs. Charton, at Sutton Courthouse, Sutton Lane, Chiswick, windows had been broken by some unseen agent. Every attempt to detect the perpetrator failed. The mansion was detached and surrounded by high walls. No other building was near it. The police were called. Two constables, assisted by members of the household, guarded the house, but the windows continued to be broken, both in front and behind the house. Or the floating islands that are often stationary in the Super Sargasso Sea, and atmospheric disturbances that sometimes affect them and bring things down within small areas upon this earth from temporarily stationary sources. Super Sargasso Sea and the beaches of its floating islands from which I think, or at least accept, pebbles have fallen. Wolverhampton, England, June 1860. Violent storm. Fall of so many little black pebbles that they were cleared away by shoveling. La Sai Pour Tu, 5.264. Great number of small black stones that fell at Birmingham, England, August 1858. Violent storm, said to be similar to some basalt a few leagues from Birmingham. Report Brit Association, 1864-37. Pebbles described as common water-worn pebbles that fell at Palestine, Texas, July 6, 1888, of a formation not found near Palestine. W. H. Perry, Sergeant, Signal Corps, Monthly Weather Review, July 1888. Round smooth pebbles at Kandahar, 1834. American Journal Science. 126-161. A number of stones of peculiar formation and shapes, unknown in this neighborhood, fell in a tornado at Hillsboro, Illinois, May 18, 1883. Monthly Weather Review, May 1883. Pebbles from aerial beaches and terrestrial pebbles, as products of whirlwinds, so merge in these instances that Though it's interesting to hear of things of peculiar shape that have fallen from the sky, it seems best to pay little attention here, and to find phenomena of the Super Sargasso Sea remote from the merger. To this requirement we have three adaptations. Pebbles that fell where no whirlwind to which to attribute them could be learned of. Pebbles which fell in hail so large that incredibly could that hail have been formed in this earth's atmosphere. Pebbles which fell and were long afterward followed by more pebbles as if from some aerial stationary source. In the same place in September 1898 there was a story in a New York newspaper of lightning or an appearance of luminosity 
in Jamaica. Something had struck a tree. Near the tree were found some small pebbles. It was said that the pebbles had fallen from the sky with the lightning, but the insult to orthodoxy was that they were not angular fragments, such as might have been broken from a stony meteorite, but they were water-worn pebbles. In the geographical vagueness of a mainland, the explanation, up from one place and down in another, is always good, and is never overworked, until the instances are massed as they are in this book. But upon this occasion, in the relatively small area of Jamaica, there was no whirlwind findable. However, there in the first place, bobs up. Monthly Weather Review August 1898, 363. That the government meteorologist had investigated, had reported, that a tree had been struck by lightning, and that small, water-worn pebbles had been found near the tree, but that similar pebbles could be found all over Jamaica. Monthly Weather Review, September 1915, 446. Professor Fassig gives an account of a fall of hail that occurred in Maryland, June 22, 1915. Hailstones the size of baseballs, not at all uncommon. An interesting but unconfirmed account stated that small pebbles were found at the center of some of the larger hail gathered at Annapolis. The young man who related the story offered to produce the pebbles, but has not done so. A footnote. Since writing this, the author states that he has received some of the pebbles. When a young man produces pebbles, that's as convincing as anything else I've ever heard of, though no more convincing than if having told of ham sandwiches falling from the sky, he should produce ham sandwiches. If this reluctance be admitted by us, we correlate it with a datum reported by a Weather Bureau observer signifying that whether the pebbles had been somewhere aloft a long time or not, some of the hailstones that fell with them had been. The datum is that some of these hailstones were composed of from 20 to 25 layers alternately of clear ice and snow ice. In orthodox terms, I argue that a fair-sized hailstone falls from the clouds with velocity sufficient to warm it so that it would not take on even one layer of ice. To put on twenty layers of ice, I conceive of something that had not fallen at all, but had rolled somewhere at a leisurely rate for a long time. We now have a commonplace datum that is familiar in two respects. Little symmetric objects of metal that fell at Orenburg, Russia, September 1824. Philosophical Magazine, 48463. A second fall of these objects at Orenburg, Russia, January 25th, 1825. Quarterly Journal of the Royal Institute, 1828, 1447. I now think of the disk of Tarbus, but when first I came upon these data, 
I was impressed only with recurrences, because the objects of Orenburg were described as crystals of pyrites or sulfate of iron. I had no notion of metallic objects that might have been shaped or molded by means other than crystallization, until I came to Arago's account of these occurrences. Oeuvres, 11.644. Here the analysis gives 70% red oxide of iron and sulfur, and lost by ignition 5%. It seems to me acceptable that iron, with considerably less than 5% sulfur in it, is not iron pyrites, then little rusty iron objects, shaped by some other means, have fallen four months apart at the same place. Mr. Arago expresses astonishment at this phenomenon of recurrence, so familiar to us. Altogether, I find opening before us vistas of heresies to which I, for one, must shut my eyes. I have always been in sympathy with the dogmatists and exclusionists. That is plain in our opening lines. That to, be, to seem to be is falsely and arbitrarily and dogmatically to exclude. It is only the exclusionists who are good in the 19th century are evil in the 20th century. Constantly we feel emerging away into infinitude, but that this book shall approximate to form, or that our data shall approximate to organization, or that we shall approximate to intelligibility, we have to call ourselves back constantly from wandering off into infinitude. The thing that we do, however, is to make our own outline, or the difference between what we include and what we exclude vague. The crux here, and the limit beyond which we may not go very much, is acceptance that there is a region that we call the Super Sargasso Sea. Not yet fully accepted but a provisional position that has received a great deal of support. But is it a part of this earth? And does it revolve with and over this earth? Or does it flatly overlie this earth, not revolving with and over this earth? That this earth does not revolve and is not round or roundish at all, but is continuous with the rest of its system, so that if one could break away from the traditions of the geographers, one might walk and walk and come to Mars, and then find Mars continuous, continuous with Jupiter. I suppose someday such queries will sound absurd. The thing will be so obvious, because it is very difficult for me to conceive of little metallic objects hanging precisely over a small town in Russia for four months if revolving unattached with a revolving earth. It may be that something aimed at that town and then later took another shot. These are speculations that seem to me to be evil relatively to these early years in the 20th century. Just now, 
I accept that this earth is not round, of course, that is very old-fashioned, but roundish, or at least that it has what is called form of its own, and does revolve upon its axis, and in an orbit around the sun. I only accept these old traditional notions, and that above it are regions of suspension that revolve with it, from which fall objects by disturbances of various kinds, and then later fall again in the same place. Monthly Weather Review, May 1884-134 Report from the Signal Service Observer at Bismarck, Dakota That, at 9 o'clock in the evening of May 22, 1884, sharp sounds were heard throughout the city caused by a fall of flinty stones striking against windows. Fifteen hours later, another fall of flinty stones occurred at Bismarck. There is no report of stones having fallen anywhere else. This is a thing of the ultra-damned. All editors of scientific publications read the monthly weather review, and frequently copy from it. The noise made by the stones of Bismarck rattling against those windows may be in a language that aviators will some day interpret, but it was a noise entirely surrounded by silences. Of this ultra-damned thing there is no mention, findable by me in any other publication. The size of some hailstones has worried many meteorologists, but not textbook meteorologists. I know of no more serene occupation than that of writing textbooks, though writing for the war cry of the Salvation Army may be equally unadventurous. In the drowsy tranquility of a textbook, we easily and unintelligently read of dusk particles around which icy rain forms, hailstones in their fall, then increasing by accretion. But in the meteorological journals, we read often of air spaces nucleating hailstones. But it's the size of the things. Dip a marble in icy water. Dip and dip and dip it. If you're a resolute dipper, you will, after a while, have an object the size of a baseball. But I think a thing could fall from the moon in that length of time. Also the strata of them. The Maryland hailstones are unusual, but a dozen strata have often been counted. Farrell gives an instance of thirteen strata. Such considerations led Professor Schwedoff to argue that some hailstones are not and cannot be generated in this Earth's atmosphere, that they come from somewhere else. Now, in a relative existence, nothing can of itself be either attractive or repulsive. Its effects are functions of its associations or implications. Many of our data have been taken from very conservative scientific sources. It was not until their discordant implications or irreconcilabilities with the system were perceived that excommunication was pronounced against them. 
Professor Schwedoff's paper was read before the British Association. Report of 1882, page 453. The implication and the repulsiveness of the implication to the snug and tight little exclusionists of 1882, though we hold out that they were functioning well and ably relatively to 1882. That there is water, oceans or lakes and ponds, or rivers of it, that there is water away from, and yet not far remote from, this Earth's atmosphere and gravitation. The pain of it. That the snug little system of 1882 would be ousted from its reposefulness. A whole new science to learn. The science of super-geography. And science is a turtle that says that its own shell encloses all things. So the members of the British Association... To some of them, Professor Schwedoff's ideas were like slaps on the back of an environment, denying turtle. To some of them, his heresy was like an offering of meat, raw and dripping, to milk-fed lambs. Some of them bleated like lambs, and some of them turtled like turtles. We used to crucify, but now we ridicule, or... In the loss of vigor of all progress, the spike has etherealized into the laugh. Sir William Thompson ridiculed the heresy with the phantomosities of his era. That all bodies, such as hailstones, if away from this Earth's atmosphere, would have to move at planetary velocity, which would be positively reasonable, if the pronouncements of St. Isaac were anything but articles of faith, that a hailstone falling through this Earth's atmosphere with planetary velocity would perform 13,000 times as much work as would raise an equal weight of water one degree centigrade, and therefore never fall as a hailstone at all, be more than melted, super-volatilized. These turls and these bleats of pedantry, though we insist that, relatively to 1882, these turls and bleats should be regarded as respectfully as we regard rag dolls that keep infants occupied and noiseless. It is the survival of rag dolls into maturity that we object to. So these pious and naive ones who believed that 13,000 times something could have, that is, in quasi-existence, an exact and calculable resultant, whereas there is, in quasi-existence, nothing that can, except by delusion and convenience, be called a unit in the first place, whose devotions to St. Isaac required blind belief in formulas of falling bodies. Against data that were piling up, in their own time, of slow-falling meteorites, milk-warm ones admitted, even by Farrington and Merrill, at least, one icy meteorite nowhere denied by the present orthodoxy, a datum as accessible to Thompson in 1882 
as it is now to us, because it was an occurrence of 1860. Beans and needles and tacks and a magnet. Needles and tacks adhere to and systematize relatively to a magnet. But if some beans, too, be caught up, they are irreconcilables to this system and drop right out of it. A member of the Salvation Army may hear over and over data that seems so memorable to an evolutionist. It seems remarkable that they do not influence him. One finds that he cannot remember them. It is incredible that Sir William Thompson had never heard of slow-falling, cold meteorites. It is simply that he had no power to remember such irreconcilabilities. And then Mr. Simons again. Mr. Simons was a man who probably did more for the science of meteorology than did any other man of his time. Therefore, he probably did more to hold back the science of meteorology than did any other man of his time. In Nature, 41-135, Mr. Simons says that Professor Schwedoff's ideas are very droll. I think that even more amusing is our own acceptance that not very far above this Earth's surface is a region that will be the subject of a whole new science, supergeography, with which we shall immortalize ourselves in the resentments of the schoolboys of the future. Pebbles and fragments of meteors and things from Mars and Jupiter and Azuria, wedges, delayed messages, cannonballs, bricks, nails, coal and coke and charcoal and offensive old cargoes. Things that coat in ice in some regions and things that get into areas so warm that they putrefy or that there are all the climates of geography in supergeography. I shall have to accept that floating in the sky of this earth there often are fields of ice as extensive as those on the Arctic Ocean, volumes of water in which are many fishes and frogs, tracts of land covered with caterpillars. Aviators of the future. They fly up and up. Then they get out and walk. The fishing's good. The bait's right there. They find messages from other worlds. And within three weeks, there's a big trade worked up in forged messages. Sometimes I shall write a guidebook to the Super Sargasso Sea for aviators, but just at present there wouldn't be much call for it. We now have more of our expression upon hail as a concomitant or more data of things that have fallen from the sky with hail. In general, the expression is, these things may have been raised from some other part of the Earth's surface, in whirlwinds, or may not have fallen, and may have been upon the ground in the first place. But were the hailstones found with them, raised from some other part of the Earth's surface, or were the hailstones upon the ground 
in the first place. As I said before, this expression is meaningless, as to a few instances. It is reasonable to think of some coincidence between the fall of hail and the fall of other things. But, inasmuch as there have been a good many instances, we begin to suspect that this is not so much a book we're writing as a sanitarium for overworked coincidences. If not conceivably could very large hailstones and lumps of ice from in this Earth's atmosphere, and so then had to come from external regions, then other things in or accompanying very large hailstones and lumps of ice came from external regions, which worries us a little. We may be instantly translated to the positive absolute. Cosmos 13.120 quotes a Virginia newspaper that fishes, said to have been catfishes, a foot long, some of them, had fallen in 1853 at Norfolk, Virginia, with hail. Vegetable debris, not only nuclear but frozen upon the surfaces of large hailstones at Toulouse, France, July 28, 1874. La science pour tout. 1874-270. Description of a storm at Pontiac, Canada, July 11, 1864, in which it is said that it was not hailstones that fell, but pieces of ice from half an inch to over two inches in diameter. Canadian Naturalist, 2-1-308. But the most extraordinary thing is that a respectable farmer of undoubted veracity says he picked up a piece of hail or ice in the center of which was a small green frog. Storm at Dubuque, Iowa, June 16, 1882, in which fell hailstones and pieces of ice. Monthly Weather Review, June 1882. The foreman of the Novelty Ironworks of this city states that in two large hailstones melted by him were found small living frogs. But the pieces of ice that fell upon this occasion had a peculiarity that indicates, though by as bizarre an indication as any we've had yet, that they had been for a long time motionless or floating somewhere. We'll take that up soon. End of section 16. Recording by Patrick McAfee, Chicago, gis.depaul.edu, slash pmcafee.